Hi, Bertie. Hiya, Bill. How are you? Look at this. <laughs> this is a picture of us. At Dublin Castle. I remember that night well. Yeah. God, that was the most amazing party I've ever been to. The people who organized it were upset because I had to take a flight out and I couldn't leave any later than 1.45 a.m., which is when I left. They wanted to go on for another hour. It was the damnedest dinner I ever saw. And do you remember Richard Harris was still alive and he read a poem and John Hurt was there. Three Irish tenors were there. The Corps were there. And uh, Bono came and introduced me less than 24 hours after the birth of his last child. And his wife was with him. She was only 18 hours after the birth and she turned, yeah. turned up with she drinking like with the rest dollars. of us. <laughs> Will you please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, William Jefferson Clinton, do solemnly swear. I, William Jefferson Clinton, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will to the best of my ability. And will to the best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations. In this episode, I reunite with former U.S. President Bill Clinton, who tells me why he became so engaged in the Northern Ireland peace process, why some in America were upset by his involvement, and what impact his visits to Northern Ireland, both before and after the Good Friday Agreement, had on him. I'm Bertie Hearn, Taoiseach of Ireland from 1997 until 2008. And this is the story of the Good Friday Agreement, as I remember it. Episode 8, The American Influence. After a 30-year winter of sectarian violence, Northern Ireland today has the promise of a springtime of peace. The agreement that has emerged from the Northern Ireland peace talks opens the way for the people there to build a society based on enduring peace, justice, and equality. The vision and commitment of the participants in the talks has made real the prayers for peace on both sides of the Atlantic and both sides of the peace line. All friends of Ireland and Northern Ireland know the task of making the peace endure will be difficult. The path of peace is never easy, but the parties have made brave decisions. They have chosen hope over hate, the promise of the future over the poison of the past. And in so doing, already they have written a new chapter in the rich history of their island. I suppose the first thing, um, Bill, that I think people might not know, I, I know because we talked about it many times, but it was when you were in, in the UK as a student that you, you started taking an interest in the Troubles. And uh, you, you, you might just rem- remind us of those days. It was just at the very start of the Troubles, I think. I was in England, as you know, as a student, 
from October of 1968 to June of 1970. So I saw all this begin. I saw the troubles begin. I remember what a kind of cult figure Bernadette Devlin became when she went to the uh, British Parliament. And I had always cared about it. And I promised when I ran for president that I would appoint a special envoy and that uh, I would seriously consider a visa for Jerry Adams. Uh, the secretary did approve a visa request for Jerry Adams um, this morning, and um, he uh, applied for a visa on August 11th in Dublin. Uh, she approved that this morning. Uh, there is a ceasefire in place, and she uh, granted that waiver this morning. We, of course, will watch it very carefully, though, and monitor his, his activities in that regard, because the obvious reasons. Most people thought it was just politics with the Irish community in New York, but it was more than that. I, I realized that the size of the American diaspora and the level of investment we had in the North were so significant that we might be able to really make a difference. So I had turned down a visa for Jerry Adams in my first year in office, but by the beginning of the second year, I was convinced that we had to do something like that to try to rope Sinn Féin in because if they weren't really for some sort of agreement, we were never going to get it. And uh, when John Hume told me he thought I ought to do it, and uh, the then Taoiseach, who was Albert Reynolds, thought I should do it. But a lot of Americans didn't want me to do it, including the Irish-American Speaker of the House, Tom Foley, and more importantly, the entire State Department. And I had appointed... Admiral William Crow, who had been chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and had endorsed me for president, which was really important to me because he gave me national security credibility when the Republicans were attacking me. So we had American politics to play out. The State Department was in a panic that I would do this and destroy the special relationship within England. The British press was full of stories saying, <laughs> that I was just doing it to get back on John Major because he had agreed to go through my passport files for the Republicans during the 92 campaign in America because they alleged that I tried to give up my American passport and go to the Soviet Union to continue my opposition to the Vietnam War. It was all hokum. It, there was nothing to any of it. And I wasn't mad at Major. He and Bush were friends and he tried to help him. It was I knew what was going on. And I also knew the story was phony, so I was happy to have them wasting time on something that was never going to come to anything. That was before fake news could actually be as effective as the truth. But anyway, it was a highly contentious thing. But I, I knew that we had to do something to get this process off the dime. And I give John Major a lot of credit for starting those talks in December of 92, before I took office. Because, as you remember, he had a very small majority in Parliament, and uh, the DUP could have taken it away from him. They, in other words, the Northern Ireland could have brought his government down. But he risked it, and they stood with it. And then we had changes. Bruton supported the peace process. Then you became Taoiseach, and Tony Blair became Prime Minister. And there had been real progress in communications between the Irish nationalists and the Republicans. And so I began to think we could get something done, but it was rocky in the beginning. 
A lot of people thought I'd lost my mind when I did it. I suppose one of the inspired actions that you took that stage was to convince George Mitchell um, to, to come and chair the talks, Bill. You, 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 yeah. you, you might recall those days because like, it, it was so difficult for anyone to chair those talks, but George Mitchell just had the patience of Jove. Well, George Mitchell, first of all, was a Senate Majority Leader in my first two years. And he basically uh, led the way to the narrowest possible enactment of my main campaign promise, which was to reverse Reaganomics, to reverse trickle-down economics, and get back to an invest-and-grow model that would focus on the middle class and giving poor people a chance to get into it. So we won that, and then we lost our efforts to provide universal access to health care. And so he left the Senate thinking that he had done all he could do, and he had recently married, and he wanted to make a go of it, be a good family man, provide for his family, and do other things. But I was devastated when he left the Senate because he was so good. So I told him that I I had this little part-time job for him that I wanted him to do. <laughs> uh, first to start out as the economic envoy, but I knew he'd drift into the politics and uh, eventually both the Irish government, as you remember, and the British government supported his being the basically negotiator of what became the Good Friday Agreement. So he, he never let me forget that that was the longest part-time job he'd ever had. And that in the five years he served, he literally crossed the Atlantic a hundred times. I mean, he was there. And when he was needed full-time, he was there in the negotiation. So I've always been grateful to him. He's still a good friend. He's 87 now, but his mind is sharp as a tack. And uh, we had a, a conversation just a couple of weeks ago, and, and I just I marvel at how clear his grasp of what was going on was. And, you know, George had one Irish parent and one Lebanese parent, and the Lebanese were virtually destroyed in the 1970s by all the factionalism there. And they worked out an agreement, which has been up and down over the decades, but which has held the country together to have uh, the president of one party, the prime minister of another, and the chief justice of the Supreme Court of another group. And they've sort of had what the Good Friday Accord was supposed to provide, you know, Majority rule, minority rights, shared decision-making, shared benefits. And in a deeply divided world, it's about the only thing that makes sense. I mean, the Northern Ireland model, I think, is still very relevant to trouble spots today. One of the really significant things, Bill, was when back in, after we got the ceasefire, the second ceasefire up and running again in the summer of, of 97, when... Tony was had come in. I I was just in, and it was when David Trimble stayed in the talks when he he could have you know he could have very easily pulled out of the talks and we would have been in in big trouble. The reason the others pulled out that time was because particularly the DUP was because Sinn Fein were coming in. I think you'd always said to me from um, you know even 
years before that when the first ceasefire was on when I met you when I was leader of the opposition that if we didn't have Sinn Féin in the talks we were going nowhere so I, I think nowhere uh, yeah and and the visa the visa was a key bit of that but I think when you look back now in the space of 25 years it really was a crucial crucial thing to get them at the table and I don't think I could have had much influence on it if I hadn't given Jerry Adams that visa Become because it was had enormous symbolic appeal, and he promised not to raise money, and he didn't, and he promised in the end to support peace, and he did, and the Sinn Fein did, and um, I'll never forget a conversation you had with me. I still replay it in my mind after the terrible bombing in Omaha, and. Uh, it was done by the provisional IRA or the new, you know, a discontented offshoot. The dissidents. Yeah, and you told me that the IRA had uh, assured you that if they ever did anything like that again, they wouldn't have to worry about the British government coming after them because they were coming after them. And, you know, that and the way they handled the decommissioning in the end, although there were some rough spots along the way, convinced me that we could really do this. Just turn to that last week, Bill. You had enough of things on your plate without us getting you to stay up for a few nights, but it was an extraordinary period because at the start of that week, the Belfast Telegraph ran a poll that said we'd 95% chance of failure, 5% chance of success. Uh, it wasn't particularly good odds going into the last lap of the of the negotiations. But can you recall those those calls and, you know, contacts during that week? Because there were so many times it was nearly gone, Bill, and it was a matter of trying to pull people back from the brink all the time. Well, you remember when we got down, as we say in my native state of Arkansas, when we got down to the lick log at the end, and you and Tony Blair and George Mitchell were there with the parties, I was asked to call in several times, and I did. <laughs> and it became funny when we got to the very last day because you guys are about five hours ahead of us. So I was made several calls, and then I remember at 2.30 in the morning, American time, I was still on the phone. <laughs> and I thought, I got off the phone, I thought, they're going to do it, they're going to do it. At 5 o'clock, George Mitchell called me. 5 a.m., and I'd gone to bed at 2.30. And I said, George, you know what time it is? He said, yes. He said, you gave me this part-time job. What do you say we make a go of it? <laughs> I need you to make two more phone calls. And so I did. But I think in the end, the credit belongs to all of you and the Northern Irish parties because they decided it was better to take a risk for peace and stay in the rut of violence. And I think we just sort of helped to get them there. I suppose when we went through that week and, you know, against the odds, everybody signed up and we, we moved on. And then we had that vote in May 1998 and, you know, things were, were looking bright. And it really was a a, a very happy uh, summer in, in the North. And then OMA, 15th of August 1998, um, I, I recall speaking to you by phone that night um, and then you, you kindly came over very, very quickly, which was a huge impact 
um, when you, you visited the homes and the hospitals and that. But it, it, again, after all the, the good work of April, it looked by August that we really were, we were in the depths of depression. Well, I wanted to be there. Um, I'll never forget the ceremony we had in Oma. And it was, ironically, the most violent single day in the history of the Troubles. And there was much dispute about whether the people who set off the bomb intended to kill all that many people. And, but they did leave the car where it was, and the bomb was what it was, and people died. And I remember the beautiful young Irish woman who was blinded by the bomb who played piano for us. Yeah, in the White House. And, yeah, she was so amazing. But I met her there first. Yeah. So anyway, we went to Omaha. And then you and I had a long talk. And that's when you told me that if we could just keep the thing on, you thought it would be all right because the IRA itself had warned these guys never to do anything like that again. And it was very hard for a lot of those IRA people. They were, you know, they had a very tight-knit sort of separate cell set up so that many of them never got caught. And they were often only called upon to take one violent action a year, but they got a check every month. And now they were facing maybe going to work every day at a job less thrilling with a lunch pail. So I understood that it was going to be hard, but I, I confess, I, I was, I didn't know what to do when that bomb went off. I just knew I had to go back to Ireland and beg them not to give a victory to the people who set the bomb off by shutting the peace process down. Bill, they, they, they've just uh, announced the British government a, a new inquiry into OMA. Um, so for the victims have been fighting for this for the last, you know, 20, 20 years. I know you you met many of those. You met them a few times that I was I there. But uh, I, you, you, you would agree that it's a good thing that they get this opportunity to get a, a proper inquiry. I do, because that was a mass murder that occurred after the agreement had been reached. So they can't say, well, we were out here, you know, fighting for truth, justice and the Irish dream. And uh, I think that there has to be some system set up that I don't I think there'll be mass firing squads. Nobody thinks about that. But, you know, the, the trials that have occurred since OMA, have, some of them have been vacated because of the appellate courts found errors in the way the trial was conducted. So one of them fell apart because the principal witness changed his testimony. These things have happened. There needs to be something just for OMA, I think. It may not be throwing 30 people in prison for 30 years. And I think the victims groups need to be consulted. The citizens need to be consulted. And I think the process should not be unilateral. That is, it can't just be what the British think should be done. It has to, you know, the people in the community have to be considered. After that, there was little or no violence. There were isolated events over the last 25 years after that. By and large, the peace process has has been very peaceful. It, it, it's the, the political process has been a bit more shaky. It's been up and down. The institutions are up and down. But Northern Ireland has, you know, until Brexit, we, we continue to, 
you know, have a very stable position. I suppose as 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 you look back, Bill, you know what what's your your advice now, and you know, how we handle things as we move forward. Well, first of all, I think that the Irish improved on both sides. Incredibly uh, creative when they're working together and trying to work out what to do. As you know, when uh, Brexit was adopted, the Prime Minister David Cameron resigned because he had promised to bring it to a vote, but he was against it and he couldn't believe it would pass. And it was a sort of a harbinger of what was going on all around the world where people were wanting to withdraw from one another and thinking their differences were more important than their common humanity. And so Cameron left. Then Theresa May became prime minister. And she was at most lukewarm about Brexit, but she was a vicar's daughter and she thought she had an obligation to see it through. And yet she pledged to you and to all the people in the North that it would not affect the Good Friday Accord and the economic cooperation between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic and through the Irish Republic, the EU. When the vote on Brexit occurred, the Scots felt the most sold out because they had just voted to stay in the UK, never dreaming that their whole future would be compromised by it because they were also more dependent on European Union trade than they were British trade. So they voted to stay, but the Northern Irish voted to stay. And they voted to stay in the EU by about the same margin they voted for the Good Friday Accord. Uh, but if you remember, the Good Friday Accord passed with like, I don't know, 87% of the vote in Ireland. And yeah, it was 70% 70, 70 in the north and, and about 90 in the south, <laughs> over 90. Yeah, and a, and a clear majority in the north. Yeah, over 70. But they thought at the time, unionists for sure thought that given the changing demographics, they would not forever be in the majority. But the Irish might not be either if the Irish Republicans might not be either if more and more immigration continued to occur and more and more integration into the European Union. So this whole thing had a uh, substantive but also a psychological, you know, challenge. And what I tried to argue, I guess, last in 2017 or 2018 was that we couldn't allow this to be a break. It, 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 uh, and it was up to the attitudes, the heart, the mind of the people of Ireland to decide what to do, and especially in the North. that it, it could be seen as a brick wall to run up against and be destroyed by, or as a high fence to jump over. <laughs> and I urged them to think of it as a fence to jump over, just another problem to solve. And, you know, these... These national unity efforts are difficult, but very important. If you look at, and, and we're still all over the world dealing with this. Look at what happened in Israel. The Israelis had the most, almost inconceivable coalition governing them under Mr. Bennett, who was a very conservative man, and yet put into his coalition the leader of the Islamic party in Israel whom he said very openly, he said, I thought the guy was a terrorist until I got to know him. And he said, I realize we've all made a lot of mistakes because we forget that when it comes to public policy in Israel, he said, we agree 70% of the time. So our coalition operated on the 70% principle. 
we would govern everywhere we could make an agreement. And we did a good job. We had budgets on time. We made social progress. We continue to have economic progress. He said, but the extremists only had to peel one portion away from the left of our coalition and two away from the right, and then we were done. And now they're back to, uh, now there's so much controversy in Israel over even what is the definition of a Jew. Yeah. A Jewish friend of mine in New York, they said, oh my God, we might have to be part of a new diaspora. We may no longer be welcome at home in Israel. So this is not unique, but the Irish response so far has been unique. And I credit the successors of, of Jerry Adams and Ian Paisley and David Trimble and others with trying to find a way through. We now have, we've both uh, Northern Ireland and Ireland have had women leaders in the Sinn Féin. Uh, some have been more helpful than others based on their own experiences in life. But my only advice here is when you live in a time of upheaval and inequality, and you're trying to govern in a way that is inclusive. So you have shared economic progress, shared political participation, shared social justice commitments. So you have majority rule, minority rights, shared decision-making, shared benefits, and special relationships with both the Irish Republic and through them, the European Union and the UK. It doesn't make any sense to give in to the ideologues and risk giving away what you've got. And I think the main thing the peace process has got going for it today, even though we still don't have local government again, and we should, is that nobody wants to go back to what it was like. No one wants to run the risk. And that is a very good thing. It is the enduring memory of the troubles and what happened in the hopeful times of the 90s, as well as the, the ongoing problems, has carried through a major financial crash that affected Ireland terribly and affected Northern Ireland and carried through the Brexit mentality sweeping the world and you're still there. And I think that's what people have to remember. We're still there. I've watched these amazing changes in the Irish Republic where center-right governments seem to be in control and then the Irish get a vote on the reproductive choice issue and vote overwhelmingly for that. Same thing happened in America when uh, the Supreme Court reversed the position on, on Roe v. Wade. All of a sudden you had these states that we all assumed were totally in the Republican camp voting in referenda to reinstate a woman's right to choose. Not because they were pro-abortion, but because they didn't think the government should make that decision for people. And that's what happened in the Irish vote. So I've seen all this happen and a lot of it was happening during a time of great turmoil in the Catholic Church over uh, child abuse and other issues, which could not have been easy in Ireland. And yet, somehow, you have persisted. And that's what you have to do in life. There are no permanent defeats or victories in politics. You know that. You were in uh, several ministerial positions. You were in, you were out. You just have to keep going. Yeah. And I think in some ways, a parliamentary system, which is why I want to see the local governance restored in Northern Ireland, the parliamentary system accustoms people to compromise in some ways that a 
system like America doesn't, although we're all being forced to deal with it. If our people are evenly divided on five things and uh, 75% of them agree on five things, once you put the things you agree on front, up front, it becomes somewhat easier to reach accommodation on how to manage our differences. And that's what you've got to do there. Yeah. I think, for example, in our heritage, both from the British point of view and the Irish point of view, and especially from the Scots-Irish point of view, we want accountability and justice before we have reconciliation. And yet somehow you have to do both at the same time. And you have to give up some retribution, no matter how justified it is. So you're going to debate that. You're going to keep debating that. And you'll either solve it or you won't. But I watched this in South Africa when Mandela did the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but also in a different way, which maybe should be thought about a little bit in your context in Rwanda where there was an international court of justice and the people who were guilty of mass killings, ordering them and leading them, they were referred to the international court of justice. But others were told if they would come home and forswear violence and admit the truth of what they had done, then they could be sentenced up to, I forget, three or four years of various kinds of service for the community where they lived. And uh, I'll never forget, I was in Rwanda one day, and I went to a village which the government had established to give land for housing to people only if they agreed to live as neighbors with people of the opposing group when they had fought in the Rwandan genocide, which, you know, claimed at least 800,000 lives yeah. in about 90 days. And I saw two women holding hands. One of them had lost her husband, and her parents and a brother in the genocide. The other woman's husband was before the International Criminal Court for ordering hundreds of people to be killed. And they were holding hands as neighbors. They said, you know, we have to begin again. The Africans may be more predisposed to that because they don't have a long history of governments and courts and prisons and all that. But we all, we need more forthright discussion of what, after all this time, is the right thing to do. But it won't work. And this is one of the things that a lot of people were questioning in the legislation that was offered, you know, in the British Parliament. It won't work unless people have to truly come clean and truly acknowledge it. And so we're working through that. I went through the same thing in Colombia. Colombia had this peace process, which, and everybody I knew in Colombia had lost someone. President Pastrana had lost a parent. President Uribe had lost a parent. Everybody had lost somebody. And they had big differences about how hard to be on the people who wanted to come back in from the cold. And as a result, the politics of the country have been divided since they signed the peace agreement and then were complicated by the chaos in Venezuela and the horrible impact COVID had on. So this is a big global issue. And we have the largest number of refugees of any time since World War II. 
one in every 95 adults on earth has been driven from his or her home and is living somewhere else, maybe in the same country or in another country. If we want to put this back together, we're going to have to be very creative. I think it's one of the great challenges of the modern world. But if, if you look at the Irish problem in the context of what else has happened in the world in the last 20 years, you might think it's a miracle that the peace agreement is held at all. And I think it's a, as I said, I love it when people give me some credit for it. But the truth is that I think the ultimate credit goes to the leaders like you and Tony and the people who came before you and to the people who just decided they needed to stop killing each other. Well, I just want to go back and when I used to go to the European Council meetings, 27 countries around Europe, you're familiar with how it works. You, you, you knew all the guys around those tables. Um, they always said, you know, how, how did you manage from little small islands that we consider were very big, of course, but very important. But how could you manage to get the president of the United States to, in his eight years of office, to come to your country so many times, north and south? And I think it's a huge tribute to you that, that you did that. You, those huge rallies that I was with you and I was at the College Green one in the crowd, but um, I was with you in Dundalk. You might remember that that enormous thing on the oh, border crowd yeah, on a cold night, but it was, and then Limerick again. And, you know, but I think you, you gave us so much time, uh, Bill. And, and you know, it, the, the reality is a huge amount of the, the foreign direct investment uh, and so many of the... You know the, the American companies that are in the country. So much of that happened at that time, and it's, uh, you know, it, it hasn't just brought peace, but it's brought huge economic benefits to your, your efforts. Well, thank you, but I, I think it was possible in no small measure because there was an overwhelming feeling among the Irish diaspora that something had to be done in America. They're 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 important to America, and they were supporting it. So I had. Uh, I remember 800 Irish people showed up on the South Lawn of the White House in 1998 when they were trying to run me out of office and said, you can't do this. We have to do the peace here. I mean, it was a, it was a feeling that uh, Irish people in America had that they could finally do something for their homeland. And that made it possible. And I also will say again, you know, that I thought your leadership was extraordinary. I thought Tony Blair was extraordinary. I think John Major took a chance when his his government could have fallen to, in principle, say we should end the fighting. And um, I just was glad to be there because I understood it, I thought. I remember my daughter, Chelsea, wrote her honors thesis at Stanford on the involvement of America with Ireland and the history of America and Ireland and how we got all the Irish in America through factors that are well known and then how we started doing this. And um, Chelsea never gilds the lily, you know, so she said, this is 22 years ago and her, her thesis holds up pretty well. She said, look, in the beginning, you were under a lot of political pressure and you generally wanted to do it. But I don't think that you knew what risk you would run. But the more you got into it, the more committed you became. And I think you did a good job, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I've reached the age when my daughter's judgment is one of the most important things in the world to me. So 
anyway, it happened. But I also have lived through all these other conflicts. And when we had the tsunami in East Asia in 2005, Indonesia was devastated. More than 200,000 people were killed by a natural event. And there, were, there was a long-standing ethnic divide in the province of Aceh. And in the process of rebuilding, the parties worked together and found out they weren't so different after all and healed their differences. Even in Sri Lanka, where there was a bitter civil war between the uh, minority Hindu Tamils and the Buddhist majority, we actually held a meeting and there's a small Muslim sect, they're about 5%, and the Christians are about 1%. We actually had a meeting in the schoolyard of a school run by Catholic nuns, and we all sat around together. And all of a sudden, they were talking to each other, and they realized what they had in common. We didn't entirely settle the conflict then, but and it sort of reared its head again. But it's laid the foundation for continuing the nation and the idea of it. We, you know, let's... Nation states aren't perfect and they are different and they all have different interests and different values and all that business. But in the end, most people do care about their families, their children, and their ability to provide for them and also have dreams for them. And if you just keep hammering that over and over and over again, and there are people of goodwill who are on the level, who don't say one thing and do another, you got a chance, you've always got a chance. Well, Bill, listen, really, really appreciate you participating in this. Uh, I really appreciate your time and I, I look forward to continuing our conversations in Belfast and not too many weeks from now. Yeah, we're about to celebrate the 25th anniversary and I just want everyone to know that uh, there were many wonderful things about being president, but one of the greatest was the opportunity to play a role in this. Uh, I love Ireland, and I believe you had a bigger impact on the rest of the world even than you know by doing the right thing. So let's just figure out how to hold it together and go on. We're very grateful, Bill, and see you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank see you. you soon. On the next episode of As I Remember It, 25 years on, has the Good Friday Agreement stood the test of time? There are people alive today who wouldn't have been had we not made that agreement. They have aspirations that were not there in my generation or for others. And what does the future hold for the people of Ireland? I get the feeling that we're moving in a direction where there will be an agreed Ireland, where there will be the sort of Ireland of John Hume and we all want. If there is a, a referendum and people do decide to vote to unite both parts of the island, and if that's what people vote for in 100 or 200 years' time, then so be it. As I remember it, it's a News Talk original podcast. The executive producer is Mark Simpson. Producers Jess Kelly and Sandra Honan. Sound mixing Lachlan Hart. Video producer Rory Walsh. Go to newstalk.com forward slash Good Friday Agreement for bonus material, including full interviews, videos, a timeline of the peace process and a glossary of who's who in the Good Friday Agreement.